Hello and welcome to the Language Revolution podcast. My name is Kate Hamilton. I'm a languages teacher and founder of Babel Babies. The aim of this podcast is to get people talking about talking. So without further ado, let's get started. Welcome back, Ian. Hi, Kate. Lovely to be here again. So in part one of our conversation, we looked at how human communication has been rapidly changing since the invention of the internet and how more and more of our communication and friendships are taking place entirely online. So who is regulating our communication online? Are we and our children in safe hands? Well, this is the question of the century, I will say. Uh, We're not in safe hands because as we've established in our previous conversation, it has moved far too rapidly. And so we were saying how, you know, the, the law is behind, education is behind, even our brains are behind. So sadly, there are attempts at regulation, but the attempts are incredibly early stage, right? Uh, To answer the question directly, at the moment, it's the social media platforms that have grown to a size beyond belief who are taking on the mantle of responsibility for the regulation, because that's where the communication is primarily happening, right? And if you look at these companies, though, let's take Facebook and Twitter as examples, when they launched initially, they did not really expect to be the platforms on which the vast majority of human communication takes place. They didn't expect to have, you know, billions of users, right? And in fact, if you look at Facebook, it began as, you know, an innocent sort of way to uh, look at pictures of women or pictures of other people at Harvard and other kind of fancy universities in the States. Um, It was not meant to be a platform for content, right? That was not built into the system. They didn't think through the consequences of of if it became a massive content platform, which inevitably it did. So I think part of the issue is that the platforms that are supposed to regulate themselves now in a way are unable to do so because they never intended to reach the state of content moderation themselves. Um, Also, just to say that, you know, no women, I don't think, were in the room or minorities who had gone through harassment or communication abuse. The people in the room building these platforms back in the day in the uh, mid-2000s, right, they they didn't really think about the negative consequences of language, really, because they hadn't themselves been, been abused, perhaps or at least not to the extent that others have been, who would have raised these issues from the get-go. So they're very hands-off thinking, no, we we don't have any responsibility over the content that we, uh, that's on the platform. And also free speech. Look at, you know, this is is sort of American and and Silicon Valley rhetoric. Um, At first, Facebook and Twitter were like, well, look, people have the ability to express themselves freely. This is in the amendment. So we have to respect that, right? They kind of took a very hands-off approach until it became quite clear I think especially through, you know, Cambridge Analytica and other massive scandals, it became so clear that they had a responsibility. And so in recent months, um, Facebook has outsourced regulation to the Supreme Court, as it were, an oversight board. They've invested $130 million in that significant sum, which you can view as, you know, a very good sign, a good move, because Zuckerberg is now saying that this Supreme Court can overrule Zuckerberg himself. A very outwardly valiant move, I would say. Um, You can, on one level, praise Facebook for this, and I do praise them for making this massive move and a massive investment. At the same time, if you look at the scale of the 
the communication issues on the platform, what has to be decided upon, my goodness, outsourcing is probably the only option. And to hire, you know, international board of, of human rights and journalists and communication experts is the only option, really. Because if Zuckerberg himself and his team were to do it, they wouldn't be able to make the right decision. Uh, it, it's just so complex and way above their heads, right? So there's that element of it. I think the other element of it is, is GDPR, um, which is not necessarily about communication specifically, but it is a landmark regulation. Um, it was introduced uh, back in 2018 to replace legislation from 1995, before the dot-com boom and the rise of the World Wide Web, as it were. So that legislation was over 20 years old, so GDPR had to come into play. Um, and I think that was quite promising, and I was very excited about it. Um, general data protection regulation from the EU, adopted by the UK as well, basically giving people living in the UK and the EU unprecedented control over personal data uh, information that companies hold about them, literally empowering them, right? Um, and and so it allowed you know us to question organizations and to we ha we have to be asked for consent for these organizations to keep our personal information. Um, and this was, I would say, in large part triggered by factors like the Cambridge Analytical scandal, which showed that trust in these online content platforms has to be rebuilt. Um, However, as optimistic as I was initially about it, I'm now a bit more pessimistic because it's been a, it's been a couple of years and the number of fines that have been um, levied against companies breaching GDPR have been very, very small compared to the scale of how they've breached GDPR. Not, no, de no details there, but just to say that there is a clear sign that the regulators are overwhelmed by how massive how massive the regulation is um, and, and it's not their fault because you need technical skills. This is going back to what I was saying earlier about how wonderful the Internet Institute was for teaching technical skills and Python and data analysis on top of the theory skills because without technical skills you can't regulate what is fundamentally a socio-technical phenomenon and where are the technical specialists? Well, they're working for Facebook. They're working for Google. They're very expensive to hire, right? So in a way, the regulators are shot in the foot because they need people from these companies they are regulating to be on their side. It's a really messed up situation, Kate. And finally, just to say, of course, there are academics and policymakers trying to update GDPR and introduce regulation of algorithms, you know, the right to know uh, how algorithms classify us, you know, really, really fascinating stuff. Um, and there will be updates to GDPR, definitely. But I bring your attention back to the fact that as amazing as the updates might be, we need to make sure the regulators can actually regulate and are empowered themselves. That is the critical issue I see. Yeah, so I've noticed as a business owner that I now have to have an ethics policy and a privacy policy and um, an officer, a data protection officer in my company. So can you tell us a bit more about how we're looking after the ethics of these things? Yes, absolutely. Um, I work at a company at the moment that has all those things actually. And I think the team at my company is fantastic. And so, you know, to put companies in a brighter light, while they might be a bit confused about GDPR and potentially, you know, maybe by accident breach it in some way. I mean, how many of us have received 
uh, newsletters to this day that we did not remember opting into. I mean, the rules are slightly fuzzy, perhaps, um, and consent is a very complex uh, phenomenon to think about, right? So we can't really blame the companies per se. And, and, and as you just highlighted, companies are waking up to the fact that they need to hire people they haven't hired before. They're, they're making new job titles. It's tremendously exciting. There's ethics fellows now at Google DeepMind and Google at large and Facebook as well. Um, these jobs didn't exist until recently. I would say, I'd argue they're maybe five years old at most, maybe even two or three years old, right? Um, and so the ethics officers, the privacy officers, the compliance officers, they are being hired left, right, and center by responsible businesses. And this is a really good sign because of course, it will take some time for the regulators themselves to be equipped with technical skills uh, and, and for more technically minded regulators to, to join um, that side of things. So in the meantime, and this is going to be a two-way street, companies definitely need to accept part of the mantle of responsibility by hiring these officers themselves. And they are doing it in some cases, maybe just for PR reasons, but you know, still some of them are genuinely concerned about GDPR and they want to do the right thing and they spend a lot of time. So companies are investing a lot of money and time internally into making sure that they are not violating the legislation. So it definitely goes both ways. And I, I thank you, Kate, for highlighting the private sector defense um, angle of all this. Well, I think we're all sort of partly responsible for taking steps to, to regulate ourselves as well. But Yes, it's difficult to know. There isn't a kind of a book that you can go to with all the answers in yet, is there? And it's a whole new type of communication. Um, and I think my next question is to delve a bit more into the dark side of this social media world, because I recently experienced trolling for the first time on Facebook. I questioned a large company um, which I felt was going against its own sustainability policy. And I then got trolled on this Facebook post and it was horrible. It was a really horrible experience. So how does trolling affect the way that we express ourselves online? Oh my goodness. First of all, Kate, I am so tremendously sorry to hear about that experience. Um, unfortunately, it's quite common, isn't it? And this is related to what we mentioned at the end of the, pre the previous conversation we had, which is that the core kind of negative impact you know, of the internet upon communication is that it does to some degree silence us because of the fear of being trolled. Um, it's so widespread and I think you know, relevant to your particular study, case, case study, but also to many others, the trolls are economically incentivized in many cases. Um, not to go into more details, just to say that there is an economic incentive there, right? And, and also, um, you know, it's like we're all kind of being self-censored in a way. Um, I myself am extremely careful about what I publish online. So when I was doing my PhD research on uh, Brexit, during the Brexit campaign, I was collecting tweets, analyzing them as it was happening in the campaigning period. I was actually, you would, you would be surprised to hear that I was not active myself tweeting in that period. A, to maintain neutrality of my research, so I had to interview both sides of the debate, but B, because I was super worried in that contentious uh, and very rhetorical environment of, of, you know, referendum campaigning that I might say something that can be misconstrued, right? So I actually 
don't use Twitter that much, even to this day, because of my fear of being trolled. And I try to keep things as positive as I can in general, because I worry that even the most, uh, I don't know, carefully framed critique can come across as more than it really was intended to, given how you can easily misinterpret people online. Lurking is much safer, right, than participating. Um, and I guess, you know, to go back to the previous podcast a little bit as well, the reason trolling is so pervasive, yes, there's the economic incentive, but there's also the fact that it's so easy to be anonymous and there's no consequences. I mean, if you were physically in a room, Kate, and you had said that thing in, in a room, right, I can't imagine the backlash being nowhere as severe as what it was on, on social media. Because in a room, there are consequences. You're not anonymous. So, of course, again, with the anonymity and the lack of consequences, the darkest uh, sides of us do sometimes come out. And also gang mentality. A lot of trolls operate in mobs, in networks. It's never just one troll. Um, and so they kind of support each other and they also leverage bots. Uh, so the computational propaganda element comes in as well. My goodness, it's just the, the vast size and scale of the troll and bot networks that amplifies what one troll is saying. That's also quite frightening, isn't it? And, and one final thing, if I may, that contributes to this is I think mainstream media, traditional media, news media, as we could call it, has also helped accelerate troll culture in that news media spotlights it, highlights it, writes about it. So I heard from a lovely student of mine um, last week that in India where she lives, if an actress gets trolled, the media will take screenshots of the meanest, the funniest and meanest comments um, and create articles around these screenshots. Like it becomes a news item, it's gossip, it's exciting. And, and why does the media do that? Well, economic incentive. They want to get clicks and, and likes and shares, don't they? That's the incentive. And people genuinely enjoy reading gossip. They love looking at other people tearing down a celebrity, unfortunately. You get excited, right? So I, ha I hate to say it, Kate, but the mainstream media does contribute to troll culture as well. And, and finally, I would say to really hammer home how pervasive trolling is, there is no better case study and the Microsoft Taybot, which was released in 2016 for the purpose of showing the world how you can have conversational understanding through this, this bot that pretends to be a human, how it can be really playful and, and funny and entertaining. Um, and it basically learned from a vast data set of tweets. It learned how to respond to tweets sent to this account. But in less than 24 hours, it became... Uh, pro-Nazi, uh, very racist, misogynistic, uh, pro-Donald Trump. Um, and it was very articulate and it made a lot of sense. But my goodness, I mean, it basically summarizes the darkest recesses of human nature as encapsulated in the Twitter universe. Wow. In 24 hours, it had learned kind of all the worst traits of human... Less than 24 hours. Wow. And then presumably those sort of pernicious tweets got retweeted and pervaded the internet. Absolutely, because these things are 
you know, they're provocative. It's exciting to see these kinds of things. I mean, leveraging, you know, strong human emotions, um, a lot of emotional manipulation going on. And I would say uh, the vast majority of troll uh, tweets and general communication I see is highly emotional, isn't it? Highly emotional. That's a really interesting point because I am a business owner and I've been doing lots of coaching sessions with different kind of um, people who are helping me to be more authentic in my marketing for Babel Babies and that sort of, um, you know, genuine connection building and how social media is indeed social and that we should be starting conversations and not seeing people as customers, but seeing them as friends. And it's really blurring the boundaries between kind of, you know, what is marketing and what is friendship. And I feel like it's a really great area. And, you know, I now have, I think it's five Instagram accounts, three Twitter accounts, five Facebook business pages. I have all of these different platforms and LinkedIn and everything kind of all comes together in this network of the marketing that I'm doing. And it's hard for a business owner to get the message of, you know, some, you know, a a genuinely helpful product, you know, helping a child learn how to speak Arabic, for example, through music. I find it difficult to get that message to the end user, to the customers, because of the algorithm. And the way to kind of work with the algorithm is this huge science. And as business owners and um, small enterprise owners, we, you know, we need to learn how to keep up with it and how to work it in our favor. So the advice generally is to be authentic, you know, hashtag authentic. And actually, how much trust can we put in that? Because I know myself that I trust, you know, I wouldn't do something that was um, not genuine, but then something can look genuine, can't it, whilst being completely the opposite. So that is the next part of my question, I suppose. So how can we put our trust in communication and this kind of, you know, um, human thing that we do, which is talking to each other and learning to read another person is something that's a very human reflex, isn't it? You know, we get a feeling about somebody and then we want to do, you know, good things, you know, for that person because we like them. But then, of course, our data is being used to manipulate our thought processes. And so I kind of want to talk about that next year. Are our thoughts being controlled? Are we at the point where, you know, we're guided towards conclusions that we wouldn't already have thought of ourselves? Tell me about data and marketing. Wow, my goodness. Trust, authenticity, marketing all such fantastic and relevant uh, concepts. How do I answer this succinctly? I'll try my best. Um, First of all, I love that you raise the issues of authenticity and trust. I think these are two of the most important concepts of 21st century as a result of how the internet has changed the way we communicate. Um, As I mentioned earlier, our trust in technology as evidenced by massive scandals like Cambridge Analytica Um, It's in serious jeopardy at the moment. I think certainly the younger generations especially are, uh, they don't really trust anything. And we definitely have to fix it. There is a certain degree of inception happening to leverage that popular cultural reference. I think our, our thoughts are being controlled to a certain extent through these algorithms you mentioned and data. And how, how is this happening? Well, 
these companies know so much about us despite GDPR, which is a bit late, a bit reactive, not proactive, if, if that makes sense. Um, and because of how much these companies know about us, and by the way, they're all trading data amongst themselves, right? Facebook, Google, Amazon, Instagram, they're all connected. Your phone, the apps in your phone, um, you know, these data points paint such a vivid picture of who we are, whether we're pregnant, whether we're Muslim, you know, whether we're 12 or 21 or 36, it, there's such a degree of understanding of who we are through these data points that every communication from marketing can be micro-targeted. And through that, you control thoughts. And in the political context, the consequences are significant. Um, I guess, you know, look at, look at elections and how they're happening now. Uh, if, you, if you look at political communication in election context and even outside of that, the same companies that provide marketing advice for corporations are also providing advice to political candidates for election campaigns all over the world. Marketing and politics are basically now the same thing, which is insane, but it makes sense. So you basically show people that you know are, for example, anti-Turkish during the Brexit uh, campaign, you show them a statistic, which is framed as a fact about a certain number of million Turkish people coming over uh, to the UK from the EU, right? Because you know from certain data points about them that they're, they're primed to not like Turkish people. One very random example. But again, this micro-targeting, it's very effective because through this data that you have about people, you can actually judge their likes and dislikes to a frightening degree. Sometimes it's wrong, but more often it's actually correct. And GDPR is, is not really slowing down that data brokerage between different um, companies that's allowing this 3D picture of us to be built. And of course, the more time we spend on these platforms, which is basically all the time, like on our phones, we're just connected all the time. The phone has really catapulted this data collection, by the way. Uh, laptops, sure, you use them a few hours a day, certainly during work hours, but the phone is like 24-7, isn't it? It's like a, a tap, it's data on tap, to use a, a metaphor relevant to pubs. <laughs> so, um, you know, to the point where even Google search is manipulative in that what you see, Kate, when you type in flights to Paris is not the same thing as what I see when I type flights to Paris, even, even on booking sites for, for tickets to travel to places, um, even prices to some degree are being manipulated and personalized. Oh my goodness, is it ethical for that to happen? Like all communication is manipulative to a degree. The authenticity question is so complex. I have often asked myself, who am I? I don't have nearly as many Instagram and Twitter and Facebook accounts as you do, Kate. But even with my one, Inst one Instagram, one Twitter, one Facebook, one LinkedIn, I am just, I, I constantly ask myself, am I being authentic? I'm saying this on LinkedIn and this on Twitter. Is that contradictory? But then I have to please different audiences. Oh my goodness, what am I doing? I can't even answer this. It's such a complicated concept. And Unfortunately, politicians, I have to say, are to some degree manipulating it because the reason Trump is so successful is that he comes across as incredibly authentic to the point where he can lie, but because he's using strong emotions and being so authentic and tweeting himself and not having other people tweet for him, 
right? He comes across as so genuine and believable. Um, the best example of this I, I, I learned about recently through watching a BBC documentary called Trump in Tweets, BBC Three, highly recommended for any, anyone interested in communication. Please watch it. But one thing they mentioned is that this, this poor girl called Lauren, she was at one of his um, rallies and she asked him a question, back when he was running for president, by the way. She asked him a question about his attitude towards women and if he would allow them to get equal pay and access to abortion. And he was so furious at her for asking him this in public and he tweeted against her really negative tweets, calling her arrogant, calling her a Jeb staffer, even though she was never, ever, ever employed by Jeb Bush. That was a lie, but who cares? He was being authentic, people believed him. And guess what? His followers and, and trolls as well replied to him with screenshots of this poor girl who was 18, I think, at the time, 18. And they put her phone number online and other personal information online. And then she was receiving phone calls and death threats and people knew her address. It was just a nightmare. Like he literally destroyed this girl's life through his tweets, his authentic tweets. It's absolutely, it's horrifying to hear that. It's, it's absolutely horrifying. So that really begs the question, are we all just pawns in a big game of capitalism? Great question. Um, on a surface level, I, I would definitely be inclined to agree with you that most of us, except for the ones who are in control uh, at the helm of these tech companies that have all this data about us, uh, most of us are pawns. And um, it's easy to kind of fall into that victim mentality and think, oh my goodness, there's nothing we can do. The regulators are slow. I don't have the skill set required. We're all doomed, basically. Um, that's an easy narrative to, to support. However, I am fundamentally a rational optimist. And I believe that there are ways for us to prevent ourselves from being manipulated. I think this is actually already happening to some degree. Um, and it happens through critical thinking, I would say. And, you know, it's, it's our choice whether or not we're going to be pawns in this big game of capitalism. It's not forced upon us unless we let it be forced upon us. If we stop and think about all the communication we see, all the adverts we see, right? Um, and social media posts that we see, even news media that we see, if we stop and actually think, who is speaking? What are their incentives? What do they know about us? Why am I seeing this? And Facebook, ironically, is helping us with this, with uh, showing, you know, why am I seeing this for, for many of their ads, right? So the, the tech companies are, in a way, trying to help us empower ourselves, right? Um, if we just stop and think about all these questions around the context of communication, that will tremendously help. And there's also so many tools and platforms out there that are built to help us protect ourselves uh, against the dark arts of the internet. So DuckDuckGo, for example, easy alternative to Google, right? We have ad blockers. We have a lot of tools that literally allow us to deactivate social media platforms for, I don't know, two hours, 20 hours, 10 hours a week, two weeks, 10 months, um, forever, if necessary, for as long as we need, we can control that. And I think the other element of this is that we can keep social media as personal as we'd like it. There's so many customization options now that have been built in in recent years um, by these social media companies. We can choose to only connect with people we know. We can keep our tweets private to our connections on Twitter. 
um, privacy controls, again, you know, lots of options there, right? And there are marketing opt-outs and these kinds of things. So if we invest time and energy and pause to think, um, we can go a long way to protecting ourselves. And we do have a role to play in this alongside the tech companies themselves, their ethics officers and compliance counsel, um, and of course, the regulators. All of us have a role to play in this. I think that a huge way we can empower ourselves and the next generation is through language education. Surprise, surprise. And that if we could think about language, not just in terms of, you know, can I buy a coffee in Paris or, you know, can I get a job? Is it going to be better on my CV? If we think about, you know, the future, it's really language that matters the most, I think. Um, It's not going to be maths that determines necessarily how you know good we feel about the way we interact with the world i really think language is going to come back and take center stage and i'm ready for that ian i'm very excited about that and i think studying language um say in english a level language classes or modern languages classes we can be teaching our students how to be in control of their own communication so what do you what do you think about that yes yes a million times yes I listened to your previous two podcasts with uh, Transform MFL, by the way, Kate. Loved them so much. Loved what he was saying about language being at the core of a liberal and broad education that since Roman times, the world's greatest thinkers have been multilingual and thus multi-skilled. And that once you master language, you can influence people. You can make an actual tangible impact through other subjects, but language comes first. Um, language helps us not only create persuasive communication, but also learn how best to process it and consume it. The vast amounts of information we're confronted with now in the internet age will only get bigger and bigger. And through language, we can both create and consume in a more intelligent way and critically question things. So I absolutely think it is a solution. And I'm tremendously excited by how you and everyone else you're talking to, Kate, are helping drive change in curricula at schools. It has to start in two places, really, at home, parents and children, right? That comes first. And then, of course, schools, universities. That's great, but it's a bit too late. It needs to happen as early as possible. I would say infant schools, even primary schools, um, really, before pre-GCSE and continued through that. And I think alongside transforming language courses in schools, I think English courses, they're a bit too focused on literature, at least in my experience. Um, I do think there are cases where, especially in later years in education, you do see teachers bringing in social media posts, uh, Twitter posts, for example, are very popular, even Facebook, um, maybe Wikipedia pages, YouTube videos. Um, There is an attempt to do this, but I think that just needs to be more of a built-in aspect as opposed to an add-on, if that makes sense. So yes, of course, we have to still read Shakespeare and Virginia Woolf and Beowulf. These, These classics are so important. But alongside that, there are 21st century classic tweets and TikTok videos now and Reddit threads that just need to be analyzed in the same way that we analyze Charles Dickens and Hamlet and Othello and Romeo and Juliet. And I think sociology of culture is really important here as well. Um, I learned about this in my PhD. So in my mid twenties, I was first confronted with this and I thought, 
wow, why didn't my teachers back in secondary school teach me this? What, what this, um, this really amazing person called Wendy Griswold did, she's a proponent of the sociology of culture. She analyzed Shakespeare's Renaissance plays through looking at the context in which they were written and treated them as cultural objects. Who was the audience? What were Shakespeare's financial incentives? Um, what led him to choose certain themes in his plays that were, you know, performed, right? Uh, my, I mean, to a level beyond what I see in existing school curricula. So we need more sociology in English curricula, if that makes sense. It should not just be a university course. Um, and, and of course, new, more new media communication. We need to train students in how to speak and understand LinkedIn. And, and, and TikTok, right? In the curriculum itself, alongside the languages of the world, like French and German and Chinese. We need all of that. The languages of the internet, the dialects of the internet have to be taught as well. It's a tremendous change, I know, but I think we're slowly preparing ourselves for that. And I think students are um, excited about this change as well, I hope. Um, and it's, it's so important on a high level because as you say, you know, each language we learn, it's like a new perspective, a new mindset, uh, a new way of seeing the world. The more we learn, the better, especially in the globalized interconnected world we live in. Um, it's just, it's a no brainer in a way because through, through learning how we speak on, on, I don't know, LinkedIn and how we speak French, we can understand English in a better way in a stronger way and be more persuasive and, and leverage certain concepts from other languages in English. Um, it's empowerment, isn't it? And, and I would say that what's promising to me is the students that I've encountered uh, myself, I've taught a lot of students myself, they are very much not drinking the Kool-Aid. I have never seen a generation so publicly and socially and environmentally minded as this one. So, the revolution is going to happen. It's happening now. It's going to be massive, Kate, and you are at the helm alongside other people you've spoken with. And I'm tremendously overjoyed to have even played a small role by being here on this podcast. Thank you so much, Ian. It's been a real eye-opener talking to you. Um, I like to think that I know quite a lot about talking now, having spoken to so many interesting people about talking. But this, the whole future is unrolling really rapidly before us. And I think you know, it's no longer acceptable to say, oh, well, you know, that's just something for the kids to know about or um, I can't keep up with it. We need to keep up with it. And actually, coming back to some of our traditional methods of analysing literature, but in really up-to-date contexts taken from, you know, any, any of the platforms we've mentioned and applying some of the literary criticism and the uh, critical thinking skills to that could be a really brilliant way to show children that they are all linguists in whichever languages they are talking, they are constantly kind of receiving and processing and then sending out new messages into the world. And it's just this one huge network, some of it online, some of it offline, but it's absolutely fascinating to talk to you. Thank you so much. And I look forward to continuing this conversation with people on Twitter, although I realise you may not want to join in with that because you're a lurker, but luckily, <laughs> hopefully we can entice you in to say hi. Oh, more than hi, Kate. I was going to say, we have to thank Twitter as well for allowing us to meet. Um, I do think Twitter is one of the better platforms out there. Um, and also just to say, Kate, that 
language should be fun and school should be fun, right? And I think by bringing in this modernity of communication into the school curricula, everyone is going to have more fun, teachers and students both, right? So you can have enlightenment at the same time as entertainment, I would say. That is the hybrid approach I would love to see happen more, more so um, than ever before in our curricula. Yes, I think it's definitely time for a data communication and language revolution. Thank you so much, Ian. See you soon.